Today is Thursday, December 19th. This is Kurt Kovac here for Politics NC. Uh, I'm in downtown Raleigh with Gary Pierce. Gary, how are you? I'm good. Merry Christmas, Kurt. Merry Clark Christmas. Says I can say that. Well, finally, after a few years in the wilderness, we can say Merry Christmas again. I'm going to take advantage of it as much as possible while we still have the right. But it has been... Oh, 12 hours or so, but the president was impeached last night. Um, we could touch on that briefly. Uh, it is probably the biggest story of the year, even though it's been somewhat eventual. I feel like we've known this was coming, and now it's here, and maybe it's kind of like Christmas in a way you're excited for it. Or maybe I wasn't excited about impeachment necessarily, but it comes, and it maybe it's a little underwhelming. Nothing's changed, but the president has officially been impeached now, I guess, and now we just wait to see when Speaker Pelosi will send that over to the Senate. You know, the other thing I wondered when I saw the headline, Trump impeached, is how many people in America woke up today and thought that meant he's going to be removed from office? Yeah. I, I think there's a limited, and that's one of the things that makes the polling hard to translate. How many people think impeachment means removal and not indictment and don't realize there's a another step assuming there is another step because i guess there is some talk that speaker pelosi may just not pass it on to the senate if they're not going to have a real trial why send it to the senate and just let it hang there yeah so i saw a conversation about that on twitter and there's a, a columnist for i think new york magazine josh barrow who i think is is very smart and uh, he was a republican and switched parties but he's pretty down the middle, straight up guy. And he was pushing back against that idea. And I, I think I'm in the same camp. That does not make any sense to me why you would not send it over. First of all, she has to constitutionally send it to the Senate at some point. You can't just like hold on to it. But also, why impeach him at all if you're not going to send it to the Senate? I mean, at that point, you might as well just not have impeached him if there's not going to be anything to come from it. I know... The idea is that the Senate will exonerate him and then he'll be able to say, look, I didn't do anything wrong. But is that really a better outcome for him than to have just not impeached him at all? You know, I'm, on this, I'm kind of like Bill Crystal, the old neocon Republican who's turned against Trump. Who who's at Davidson now, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he's, he's teaching a course. Well, he made a great observation. He said there are a lot of things about how the Democrats in the House have handled impeachment that I might disagree with. But Nancy Pelosi has handled this thing pretty well all along, so I'll just go along with whatever she decides. And that's, that's where I am. Wherever Nancy is, I'm with her. Well, and, that, and that's another point in the, this thread that Josh um, sent out last night was that it seemed to him at least, and I think I agree with this, that every step of this impeachment process, Nancy Pelosi has, has done what seems like the most strategic or the best thing for her to do in that situation. So it just seems odd at this point that she would take lurch towards something like uncommon or, or strange like that. But I think, I mean, we all went into this process um, knowing it's DOA in the Senate. There's not going to be enough votes. Now, it, barring something crazy popping up, which it clearly didn't, um, it's just going to be more of a question, how does the Senate approach it now? Because that was something that was floated a few weeks ago, this idea that Mitch McConnell might do something to basically gum up the Senate and, and keep these senators running for president uh, tucked away in Washington instead of Iowa, which I think the caucuses are at 45 days or so, a month and a half, yeah. um, which is 
very soon when you consider next week is Christmas and New Year's and all that. Um, so, I mean, what do you what do you think about that process now? Do you think there will be an effect on these candidates for sen- uh, for a president who are in the Senate that are going to have to be in Washington, not campaigning? I, I, I have a hard time trying to figure out what the effect of all of this is going to be. To me, the most striking thing watching it, this goes back to Pelosi, is she's approached this in a very sort of calm and deliberate and strategic way. The Democrats have, con- have very deliberately conducted themselves as- that way, more of a sadness. I didn't see it last night, but somebody told me that when she announced the vote, Democrats started to applaud, and she put her hand yeah. up and stopped them. Um, and and so, as opposed to Republicans, both Trump and the people who spoke for him on the floor of the House, look literally hysterical. I mean, this angry yelling, screaming. As several people pointed out, nobody really defended the president and his character and his behavior. It was all attacking Democrats and attacking Congress, which makes political sense. I mean. Trump's approval rating you know, is what has always been 40%, but Congress approval rating is only 20%. And it goes back to impeachment. The very idea that Congress it takes both houses can remove a president, can force a president of the United States to leave office is a pretty extreme thing. And deliberately so, the founding fathers put it in. So it's it's a wrenching thing, and it's interesting to me how the how the two sides have conducted themselves. I mean, and and you know now you're right. This is just going to be a um, it's it's really a show trial in the Senate. McConnell has said I'm not an impartial juror, so we know what's going to happen. It's a kangaroo court. Yeah, is, is that is that going to help Republicans in the fall? No. Well, you know, something else I read, and I I know I can't remember who said it, but I don't know if this had foundation in uh, Founding Fathers or if this was just some person um, kind of thinking out loud what they might have thought. This person, it might have been Ben Shapiro, honestly, which I don't know, but the idea that impeachment actually isn't a bad thing and it should probably happen more often, not just for the president, but in general— holding these offices like judges or in the executive to account. And I I could kind of see that angle when you look at, you know, like an imperial presidency and the powers of the president keep growing to some point, you know, if the Congress is is too deferential to the president. And one example, I think a lot of people would cite are war powers. So the president can almost Mm -hmm. unilaterally send us to war. Most of the time, Congress doesn't even have. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, I could actually see that being value in the abstract of impeachment being a more realistic option. I know in the history of impeachments, it's it's really been picking up lately, you know, two of the last four. So some people cited impeachment as a negative thing. It's like, well, now every president's going to be impeached. But I guess uh, from the process side of it, it might not be a bad thing that every president moving forward will have to think, should I do this or will I get impeached? Because it's not sure. such a stretch. It's not unimaginable. It sort of puts a guardrail 
on presidents. I mean, I could be impeached. I'm old enough to remember where there were billboards across the South after Brown versus Board of Education, impeach Earl Warren. And then there was a move at one time to impeach Justice William O. Douglas. So um, there, there are probably some federal judges that Trump has put in now that we'll look at impeaching. Well, but, you know, that's something I hadn't really thought about. And I feel like all of the news uh, revolves around what's happening today and maybe even tomorrow, but not about the long-term effects. Like, obviously, it's almost a meme at this point, but people will post all the actions taken in the Senate, and it's just every day a dozen new judges are confirmed, mm -hmm. you know, a rapid pace. So it is going to have a lasting impact beyond what happens with President Trump. The, the country's trajectory will change in some way, good or bad, uh, remains to be seen. It's the only part of um, Trump's letter to Nancy Pelosi that I that I sort of agreed with. His last paragraph talks about how all this will look in a hundred years. You know, think about that. How will all this look in a hundred years? And what kind of country will we be in a hundred years? And that may, in in some great degree, depend on what we do the next year. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. To that point, there are two things that hopefully change. One, uh, the use of the quote, a republic if you can keep it, seems to be uh, pretty popular these days. I've heard it too many times over the past two weeks, though. I know it's every time Nancy Pelosi holds a press conference, that's what she she quotes. It's a good quote, though, but it's it's a little redundant at this point. And also, walk and chew gum. I, I feel like that's been overused a little bit. I think we could come up with a different term for that. Maybe we could do some um, messaging information that would be our new year's resolution to come up with some new cliches yeah i think the the old ones are tired but you know talking about new years there will be a couple changes in the north carolina congressional delegation so after uh this current term ends there will be some fresh faces representing us in the congress so um the two most obvious folks that are out were from redistricting george holding is not going to run again and Mark Walker is not going to run again. And George Holding, I don't think many people expected him to to make a next step, but Mark Walker was talked about as a potential uh, primary opponent to Tom Tillis. That didn't pan out, but it sounds like he's wanting to do it in 22. And then also today, uh, former Governor Pat McCrory said he was seriously considering a Senate run in 22. So it looks like the Senate race for Richard Burr's seat if he decides, as he's indicated, that he won't run again, is already got a few top-tier uh, names in there. Uh, what do you what do you make of that, people um, planning out what they're doing in 22 already, and then also, obviously, a couple folks in North Carolina choosing not to run again? I would add to that Mark Meadows as well is not right. going to run again. You know, first thing that hit me when you were talking about fresh faces is not just who's leaving think of how different North Carolina's congressional delegation will look um, in 2021 with likely Deborah Ross and Kathy Manning being seated in Congress instead of, um, of Holding and Walker. I heard a great story from a Republican, I have no idea if it's true, about Walker, which is that he met with Trump to talk about running for the Senate, and the president told him, no, Tom Tillis is my man. I'm supporting him. 
So, you know, Tillis has clearly come back in the fold. And that then Walker went to talk to Mitch McConnell about running for the Senate. And McConnell had a collection of all the clippings of stories where Mark Walker had criticized Senator McConnell. And that McConnell supposedly told him, I always help my friends. You're not my friend. And if it's up to me, you will never be in the United States Senate. So maybe Walker needs to find another congressional race to look for in 2022. Yeah, maybe. And it does seem like um, just a loop back to you know the conversation about judges being confirmed and uh, how the, the process of impeachment will go during the trial. But Mitch McConnell really runs that Senate with an iron fist and even talking about potential, you know, candidates. It's, it's, it's just interesting to see. Uh, do you think... I guess there are parallels there between him and uh, Speaker Pelosi, but I guess it really takes a figure like Mitch McConnell, especially when they have such a slim majority in the Senate. It seems like he's got a tight grip on that caucus, even when you have a couple people like, uh, I don't know, Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or Murkowski, who are kind of, you could see them bucking the party at any given point. Um, is there Are there parallels to that, you think, in um, North Carolina's history in terms of the General Assembly uh, leaders who were really yeah. uh, had well, a tight grasp. money. And, you know, you and I have talked about it before about caucuses. I mean, McConnell is in a position to tell somebody like Mark Walker, if you run in a Republican primary, I'll see that you don't get any money and your opponent is well-funded. See how well that goes. I mean, we see that playing out on, on both sides of the aisle, Senate and House. And it's certainly true in North Carolina. Um, it's, it's a big help to be recruited by the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, or the Democratic Caucus, the Republican Caucus. And it's all about money because that's where, that's how you get campaign contributions. And it's tough to go up against that. It's tough to challenge it. Well, to that point, though, there have been a couple polls, and I don't, I don't know, I haven't dug into crosstabs or anything, and, but... They both, I think, the ones I'm thinking of, showed Erica Smith above Cal Cunningham. And it's still early. I don't think either of them have spent much money in terms of advertising. But I know, at least for supporters of um, Senator Smith, it seems like that DSCC was not a badge of honor for Cal Cunningham. Obviously, you're upset if you didn't get it. But almost sort of like that populist energy that you see in the Republican side of when you're we're talking about obviously Mitch McConnell holding back money or even worse spending against Mark Walker is, is not going to be very helpful for him. But is there not some appetite for the base electorate to have the person that's not ordained by the establishment? And, and do you think that's true on the Democratic side? I mean, do you think the endorsement by DSCC of Cal Cunningham is a net negative for him in this race? Well, how many voters are going to know it? That's the thing. I mean, right. at, at this point, those polls. And you have to explain what DSCC is and yeah, for and, them and, to care. People really aren't, I mean, you know, it's not even name recognition. Neither Cal Cunningham nor Erica Smith are familiar names to Democratic primary voters. She probably is leading because what that tells you about the Democratic Party is it helps to be a woman. Just like in the Republican primaries, it hurts to be a woman. Um, but how much money is she going to be able to raise to get any message or any information about herself to 
people. That's what money translates to information in, in campaigns. And um, when you start off, when people have very little information about them, if you have money, you can fill that gap. If you don't have money, you have a tough time filling the information vacuum. Yeah, and I, I believe, I don't want to misspeak, but I think right now cash on hand, I believe Cal has just over a million dollars. And it's not going to help him to hold on to that money if he doesn't win the primary. So I don't doubt he's going to unleash a lot of spending here in the next two months before the primary comes up. Because um, especially that Senate race, there's not going to be any lack of money from across the country coming in to help flip what would be probably a majority making seat if Democrats pick up. I imagine the other seats needed to pick up a majority in the Senate would happen before North Carolina would in terms of flippability. But I don't think there's any path to a majority in the Senate that doesn't include North Carolina. So he will not he will not hurt for money if he's the candidate. But whoever ends up being the Democratic nominee is going to have, uh, I imagine, a pretty easy time raising money. It's just the opponent, Tom Tillis, will as well. Well, wasn't Tillis's race with uh, Kay Hagan, wasn't that the most expensive At the time, Senate I think. race yeah. in the country? Um, and Beto blew that out of the water, and, though. And, uh, yeah. Well, and then Deborah Ross's race uh, with Burr, that was pretty expensive. Um, any any seat that's a potential change is going to attract a lot of money. Well, do you think there will be a lot of money down ballot for uh, North Carolina General Assembly races? Oh, now, yeah. there always oh, seems yeah. like they have a little more trouble raising money, but do you think those individual candidates are going to be able to raise money, or do you think there will be sort of uh, committees and third-party groups that are contributing more directly? Well, the big challenge I know for Democrats is that um, our candidates were well-funded and a lot of good candidates were recruited in 18 in large measure because of Governor Cooper's involvement, the involvement of his team and his supporters around the state. They've got to worry most about his re-election next year. So the uh, caucuses are going to have to pick up a lot of the slack. I've, I've heard some complaints that maybe the candidate recruitment hadn't been as strong in legislative races this time. Don't know if that's true or not. And, um, but then the money is going to be a challenge. The governor has got to raise money for his race. He's got a competitive race. And so the caucuses are going to have to pick that up. What does that look like? Have you ever been involved with candidate recruitment at all? Was that something that happened much during uh, Governor's Hunt, Governor Hunt's tenure? Or no, did candidates sort of pop up? Not nearly as sophisticated and as targeted and as systematic as it is now. I mean, and, and Democrats did a great job in 2018. That's one of the reasons they um, picked up as many seats as they did. And, and I hope they did as good a job this year. Well, that was a, I know we talked about it briefly before, beforehand, but I had seen, and I don't know if it's true or not, that there were some um, very competitive Senate races that had not seen a candidate file on the Democratic side as recently as this week. And tomorrow at noon is the cutoff for filing. So hopefully they got their uh, House in order uh, and their Senate in order. But I, I also saw something from Representative Greg Meyer who tweeted that he had not been following impeachment because he'd been on the phone recruiting Democrats to run. Well, guess good news. So, yeah, that, that is good news. And I know he was um, always heavily involved in that. I think that's part of his um, 
job description there in the house. Well, I think that's the first thing to look at after noon tomorrow is how strong is the field? Because there there clearly are opportunities for Democratic pickups. Uh, Somebody was telling me that in the Senate, there are two seats, I guess, Wake and Mecklenburg, that are likely Democratic pickups. And so it goes from 29 to 21 to 27, 25. Well, you win two more seats, you're tied. Well, suddenly you need a really— What would that be? 29, 21, 27, 23. Then you win two more seats. That's 25 even. Yeah. Well, then you need a very good candidate for lieutenant governor. (laughs) You do. do. Yes. So that was something I remember um, talking about, actually. Uh, I I talked to Cal Cunningham when he was still running for lieutenant governor, and that was one of the questions is, you know, basically that job does not have much power or responsibility. But if you did have a tied— Senate, which is even more likely now than it might have been, obviously, last time. But that's the next best thing to a flipped Senate for Democrats is a a tie, because at least you have a chance. Um, Suddenly, that lieutenant governor's position becomes pretty important. And it goes from an office that may not have a lot of actual power to has enormous amount of potential power. Right. Both as a tiebreaker. And of course, the only reason anybody ever runs for lieutenant governor is to be in place to run for the governor, for governor at the next opportunity. So there's always potential power. Even if you don't have actual power right now, people think, well, you might become something one day. Better pay attention to you. Yeah, and that is interesting. There was an article in the News and Observer. I, you probably saw it, but it said there were enough candidates for lieutenant governor for both sides to have a basketball team. Um, there are that many running in well, both Well, maybe primary. they should do that. You know, okay. I'll That'd be a good some, way to decide. And you know, at one at one time, for example, when Jim Hunt was lieutenant governor in 1972, the lieutenant governor appointed committees yeah. and referred bills to committees. So it was a position of enormous power. But even back then, even though it was Democrats controlled both houses and Hunt was a Democrat, there was an effort by a lot of senators to take away his appointment power. Well, I, I'm just I'm laughing because I think. When you and I were with him a few weeks ago, I asked him something about the lieutenant governor position today as compared to then. And he said, did you really just ask me that question? <laughs> I mean, they can't do anything today <laughs> as opposed to uh, the committees and everything. Um, it's crazy that executive, even insofar as the lieutenant governor is part of the executive branch too, but they're just such a weak position in North Carolina. I know your most recent column was about the sort of the history of the veto and the redistricting and all that. But um, I wonder what state has the most powerful governor actually, or what those powers look like. Actually, I think it's Texas. In, in Texas, I think the lieutenant governor is still sort of like the governor was here. He appoints committees. He refers bills. And because of the personality of the lieutenant governor there, it's, it's particularly important. I think there are a couple of states where have kind of fluky situations like that. Most of them have gone the way of North Carolina and have pretty well stripped lieutenant governors of anything. And then the other thing that makes us different is governor and lieutenant governor don't run as a team. Yeah. They can be different parties or they can be different ideologies, like Hunt's lieutenant governor for eight years was Jimmy Green, who was a very conservative Democrat. And and they fought about everything. So every time we turned around, Jimmy Green was <laughs> setting off a grenade <laughs> you know, down at the legislature. But even when governors and lieutenant governors are sort of like-minded, there's sort of a tension there because the governor knows this person is just there waiting for me to be gone. 
Yeah, that was part of the article uh, listing all these different candidates was um, talking about what former lieutenant governors had to say. And um, I think Bev Perdue uh, was was quoted talking about it. But, you know, it, it's really it seems like it's what you make of the job because you could just go there and just sit for four years. But some of them can sort of take up an initiative and spearhead it because you do have a, a miniature bully pulpit. Um, if you say something, it might be in the news. So it is it, it is a launching pad, it seems. But it has been kind of mixed success. It's for been, that. It has been very mixed. There have been a lot of lieutenant governors that didn't make it to the governor's office uh, Jimmy Green didn't, Jim Gardner didn't, Bob Jordan didn't, Dennis Wicker did not, um, Beverly Perdue did, Jim Hunt did. I'm trying to think Walter who Dalton. else was. Walter Dalton. It, that's right, did not make it. Um, the other thing he run for is attorney general. That worked out pretty good for uh, Mike Easley and Roy Cooper. That's yeah. why they call the National Association of Attorneys General the National Association of Aspiring Governors. <laughs> Well, that, that will remain to be seen, too, for uh, Josh Stein, who's been doing a, a great job, I think, as attorney general, um, and, and mostly not partisan issues, it seems, but just general, you know, uh, general interest for the as state. A, he has an unlimited future, and he has, like a lot of people, he has a, he, he could look at a Senate race. He could look at running for governor in four years. There are options available for him. Well, a quick question on that to wrap us up, because we're approaching the half-hour mark. For, say, a Josh Stein wants to run for Senate in 22, but he's in the middle of his AG term, what does that look like? As no, a nothing to lose. Right, right. You, know, you don't win. Okay, I'm still attorney general. You can run for something else. Um, you think that's frowned upon as a candidate to run while you're still in a position like that? I'm trying to think of anybody who's done it. I mean, you, you, you couldn't give lately. as much uh, focus to your daytime job if you're running for another one. It, you would think, or well, if you're running 24 hours a day. Well, you know, the truth is, how, how much time do, does it take to do that job? I mean, if, you, if you've got a good team and you've set it up, you've been there for six years, he's got it running well, he's established his issues, run on a lot of the same issues. A lot of, you know, and, and, and being in public office is not like being an accountant where you sit around all day and you work on people's, work on documents. Right. a lot it's of delegation. About, it's about leadership and articulating a vision and you know bringing people together and motivating people so you can do that a lot of ways okay well we can leave it at that and this will i imagine be the last one we do before the new year so it'll be 2020 a new decade uh although oh. some people argue with that some people said a new decade doesn't 21. begin until 2021 but you look at um, oh the decade had to have started with year zero Right. Well, there wasn't a year zero. There was At the end of it, that was one, year one. So. But I think the decade starts with 2020. And my next blog, I think, will be about the uh, role that years in the elections and years ending in zero have had profound impact throughout American history. And this one probably will, too. Well, we will all wait with bated breath on that. <laughs> Thank you. Happy New Year.